Hi, welcome to the Sukkot edition of the Rabbi Rabinowitz podcast, hosted by the Jacksonville Colo. There is so much to talk about Sukkot, how to make a Sukkah, when to sit in a Sukkah, how to sit in a Sukkah, and of course also the Dalid Minim. Dalid is a gematria, it's a the numerical value four, and therefore the uh, short way to refer to the Lulav, Hadassim, Esrog, and Aravos, is known as the Dalit Minim. So I think I want to start there. I want to talk about the uh, shaking of the Lulav. Now, of course, the most complicated part is what makes a Lulav kosher or not kosher, and the same with uh, all of the species. That's really quite complicated, and especially uh, being that this is only audio and we don't have the aid of video or pictures, it does make it much more difficult. But just to keep it not too complicated, if maybe uh, if I can keep the overview to be uh, rather short. So a lulav. A lulav comes from uh, a date palm, and the rule is like this. If you look at your lulav closely, so all of the leaves are really double leaves, sort of like a two-ply tissue. And uh, if you if you examine the leaves, so then you'll notice that they're actually uh, stuck together. Now, <laughs> if they're not stuck together, then that's when we start to have halachic problems. I remember once not realizing I was inspecting my lulav, and I was very happy to see that I didn't see any split in any of the leaves. Or I was looking at the middle leaf, and the reason why I didn't see any split was because it was actually so split that it was so far down that I didn't even realize. So you have to know what it is that you are looking for. But when you see that people are sitting there and they're examining their lulav, that's what they're doing. They're checking to see if the middle leaf has a split or not. Halachically, the one that we're the most concerned about is known as the teomus. The teomus is the middle leaf. And there we want to make sure that there is not a split. And if there is a split, then it's less than a tefach, less than, let's say, three inches. So that's what people are looking for. Now, if the lulav is deformed, if the top was cut off, if it got very dry, which does happen sometimes that it loses its green and starts to become more uh, white, then all of these things are also potential halachic problems. But those are the main issues that come up with a lulav. Uh, that's why, I don't know how much of a problem uh, aggressive shaking is, although maybe that that could be a problem, and that's why uh, it wouldn't necessarily be a great idea to shake super aggressively. Additionally, uh, when you put the lulav away in the bag and the like, so that's why you want to be careful to make sure that it doesn't get damaged. Now, the hadasim are quite complicated. The hadasim, you want what's called misholish. Misholish means that if you look at the hadas, so you're supposed to have three leaves coming out from the same location on the stem. So if you look at the stem closely, so you should have uh, three leaves, and then those leaves should be going up, and they cover, the they, they reach to the top of the bottom of the next leaf. In other words, you shouldn't really be seeing any of the branch, because as the leaf goes up, it makes it all the way to the next set of three leaves. And those leaves go up, and they make it to the next set of three leaves. Man, a picture would be really nice to show right about now. But that's the idea, that the entire branch is covered because one leaf makes it all the way up. The top of one leaf makes it all the way up to the bottom of the next leaf. Now, like I said, we want that all three leaves should be coming out of the same part 
on the branch. Now, how much is called exactly the same part? That's one of the places where life gets quite complicated, how exactly we determine that. But that's the idea that the hadas should be misholish. Misholish means that from the word shalosh, that all three of the leaves are coming out from the same place. Again, you have a, would, you would have another problem if the leaves start to fall off. We try to be very careful with handling the, uh, the hadas. It's probably the most likely that the leaves fall off when you take them and you stick them into the holder. So then you have to be very careful not to knock off the leaves. Um, of course, if you do, you may not even realize that you knocked off the leaves because you can't see it inside anymore. And the um, also, once again, that the top should not be missing. With all of the uh, four species, you want to make sure that your tops are not missing. With the aravos, aravos are pretty much always going to be uh, kosher, although the issues would be dried out. Aravos tend to become much more of a problem that they become dried out. And uh, that's why, so, so those are... Uh, they're the easiest to replace when you live in a city that sells uh, fresh arrobas in the middle of circus because they're not particularly expensive. But uh, in a place like Jacksonville, so they say it's not that hard to make an arrobas bush. I did try one time and I wasn't successful. Rumor has it that uh, there used to be an arrobas bush in a Tzchayim synagogue, but uh, that's no longer there. So that, that's the most likely problem, that the leaves become dry and brittle. And that would make it not kosher. If for some reason the top got chopped off, then that would also be a problem. As far as the esro goes, so the esro also is uh, has a lot of potential issues. Um, we're more worried about black dots than any other color. The top third of the esro is halachically much more sensitive than the rest of the asrog. And if you see black dots there, then it, could, then it potentially is much worse than if you find it elsewhere in the asrog. Elsewhere in the asrog, it could also be a problem depending on the number and the location and all that. The most famous halacha is the pitum. Uh, many asrogim don't come with a pitum. Pitum is the little, uh, what's the word for it? It's not really a stem. I guess it's a it's a stem with a little ball on top of the esrog, and a lot of they say that they all grow with them, but some of them they fall off naturally. And if it falls off naturally, then it's perfectly legitimate. It's perfectly okay. It's still kosher. But if it only came off later, uh, then it's a problem, and because your esrog is missing something. So therefore, if one gets an esrog that has a pitum on it, then they need to be extremely careful that they don't lose that esrog over the course of sukkahs. Here in Jacksonville, if someone's uh, esrog, or really any of the four species, would become puzzle invalidated over the course of sukkahs, so you're really up to creek. You just have to start using someone else's. Remember when I was growing up living in New York, so there was one store that one year he actually had a pretty cool idea, which is that he always has leftovers, and once sukkahs begins, nobody really wants them anymore, so what are you going to do with them? So what he did was he sold pitum insurance, and for an extra like $3 or something like that, if for some reason your esrog became invalidated over the course of Sukkot, you could come back to him and get a new one. So when you're spending so much money on an esrog, the $3 seems like a very small amount of money to pay. And for him it's great because he's got all these extra ones that he doesn't know what to do with anyway. So it's like a win-win. I guess sort of like the extended warranty when you buy a washing machine or a refrigerator. 
But, uh, but anyway, so, so he went and, uh, and he sold Pitam insurance and it came with a free bumper sticker that people put on their cars. I said, I got Pitam insurance. But anyway, that is a very likely place to have a problem. And then when you put, take it in and out of your Esrog box, you have to be extremely careful to not knock off the Pitam. You may be surprised to learn, I remember I was the first time I learned this, that even though it's true that we do shake Lul of an Esrog on all seven days of Sukkot, except on Shabbos, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, but nevertheless, that's actually not biblical. It's true that the Torah writes that you should take Lul of Esrog, Hadas, Marabas, and you should shake it, but it says you should do that on the first day of Sukkot. However, the rest of the days of Sukkot, there's actually not a biblical mitzvah to do so unless you're in the base Hamigdash. In the base Hamigdash, the mitzvah was for all seven days. But outside of the base Hamigdash, the mitzvah was only on the first day of Sukkot. However, once the base Hamigdash was destroyed, so the Chacham and the sages decided to do something, Zecher Lamikdash, to remember the way that things were in the base Hamigdash. They went and they said that we should shake Lulav and Estrog on all seven days of Sukkot, which is why we do that. So it comes out then that on the first day of Sukkot, the mitzvah is biblical. The second day of Sukkot here in the diaspora would be uh, also a very serious day, but the rest of the days are only rabbinic. Now, mitzvahs that are only rabbinic in nature are also very serious. However, because it's only rabbinic, the requirements are less strict. So it's definitely possible to have a situation where your esrog, your rule, etc. would become not kosher for the first day or second day of Sukkot, but then for the rest of Sukkot, which is known as Chol HaMoed, it would then go back to being kosher again because the requirements are not as strong. So even if one thinks that it became not kosher, it's definitely worth it to go ask a question because it could be that for the rest of Sukkot, it's kosher since it's only rabbinic in nature, the requirements are not as strict. Now, like I mentioned, we do not shake it on Shabbos. Believe it or not, this is not really because of muksa. Um, because we would have a mitzvah to shake it, it would actually be permitted. But nevertheless, the Gemara says that the Chacham came, the Chacham made a decree not to shake. And the reason is because there was a concern that you might live in a place where there is no Erev, and you're not allowed to carry on Shabbos. And you're going to have a question about your rule if it's, if it's kosher or not. In other words, if, technically what you should do is either shake it home or or even better yet, bring your lulav to shul before Shabbos, and then you'll have it in shul on Shabbos, and you'll be able to shake it. However, there was a concern that maybe you'll have a question, and you'll want to bring it over to the rabbi, to go ask the rabbi if it's kosher or if it's not kosher, and you'll be so worried about your question that you'll forget the fact that it's Shabbos, and that you're not allowed to carry. So while this may sound far-fetched, but nevertheless, this is the reason why we don't shake lulav on Shabbos. Similarly, according to the Torah, when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos, one would blow the shofar even on Rosh Hashanah that falls out on Shabbos. But the Gemara gives the exact same line of reasoning that the rabbis were concerned that you may have a question about your shofar, about your blowing, and bring it to the rabbi. And therefore, they went and they said that we don't blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah that falls on Shabbos. On the first two days of Sukkot, here in the diaspora, there's a requirement to own your Four species, your Lul of Yasser, your Hadassim, your Arose. The reason for this is because the Torah says, Lekachtem Lachem, you should take for yourself. And the understanding there is that it has to be yours in order to you, for you to fulfill the mitzvah. Now, if you bought it, you paid for it, so that it is yours. And there's no question that you fulfill the mitzvah. The question becomes, what happens though if you don't have one and you have to borrow one? 
So then that's a problem, because when you borrow something, it's not yours. You have permission to use it, but it still belongs to the owner. So because of this, we find ourselves in an interesting situation. What happens if somebody wants to fulfill the mitzvah, and they don't have a lulav of their own, so they need to borrow one. So you can go over to someone, and you can ask them to borrow it on the other days of sukkahs, but on the first two days, you won't fulfill your mitzvah. The only way for you to fulfill your mitzvah is if you say, can you please give me your lulav to keep? Now, if he gives you the love to keep, it now becomes yours. There's obviously a problem, though, which is that the owner probably doesn't want to give it to you to keep because he wants it for himself. He paid good money for it, and he won't have it for the rest of Sukkot if he gave it to you to keep. So, halakhically, you're not, allowed, you're not allowed to borrow it, so you need him to give it to you to keep, but he doesn't want to do that. So there is something called a matana, a present, almanas lehachzir, on condition that you return it, which means like this. I can give somebody a present, and I can attach to that present all different types of conditions. In other words, I could say, I'm giving you a basketball, and you get to keep this basketball, but only if it rains on Tuesday. If it doesn't rain on Tuesday, then the basketball was never given to you as a gift. Or I'm going to give it to you on condition that you go on a diet, or on condition that you run a mile, or you jump up and down, whatever the case may be. You can make all types of conditions, and if the condition is fulfilled, then in fact the gift was a true present. If the condition was not fulfilled, well then, it reverts back to being yours because it was because it's as if I never gave it as a gift in the first place. So, one of the conditions that you're allowed to make is a condition, I give this to you as a gift, on condition that you give it back to me as a gift. And this actually counts as a true condition. You could do this 100%. Therefore, if someone comes over to you and says, can I please borrow your loose? You say, well, I can't lend it to you because then you won't get the mitzvah. However, I'll give it to you as a present, it should be 100% yours, on condition that you will return it to me. And you'll give it to me as a present, on condition that that should be, right? or the guy who's returning it doesn't have to make any conditions. He just has to give it back to you. So as, so if someone comes over to you and says, can I have your love? You say, sure, no problem. It's a matana amanas lahachazir. It's a present for you to keep, on condition that you give it back to me. Then if the person gives it back to you, so then it comes out that we know retroactively that 100% it was a good gift. While he had it, it was his. And once he gave it back to you, it returned to being yours. So that's the way that one fulfills the mitzvah. And that way, the person that had it actually owned it, and he fulfilled this condition. Now, as far as the shaking goes, so it's a little bit tricky, because while it's true that there's these laws about how we shake it, basically, um, the common practice, this is actually not my practice, but the common practice is that you shake, you face uh, east, you face east, and you shake in a circle. So facing east, you shake it back and forth three times, then you turn to the right, back and forth three times, then you turn once again to the right, so you're now facing backwards from where you started, uh, then you turn again, which is to the left of where you started, then you shake up, and then you shake down. So while that is the correct procedure, how to shake the luv, but one is actually, he technically fulfills the mitzvah, even with the slightest shake whatsoever, which means, essentially, once you go and you pick up your lulav, and your S-rope, you pick them all up together, so then that's it. The second you pick it up, boom, you fulfilled the, the mitzvah. Now, you didn't fulfill it in the best way because you're supposed to do the whole shake, the full circle, but the second you shook it, even that little bit, you already fulfilled the mitzvah. Now, what's the problem with that? We have a rule. The rule is that we always want to make a bracha, except for a few very rare exceptions, we always want to make a bracha before 
we do the mitzvah, not after we do the mitzvah. So when you shake the lulav, you want to make the bracha before you shake the lulav, because once you shook it, you already have got the mitzvah. It would be too late to make the bracha. The bracha comes before the mitzvah is done, not after the mitzvah is done. Now, there's also a rule that you can't do it too much before the mitzvah is done. In other words, if the lulav is still on the table and it's not in your hands, then you can't make a bracha on it. It's too far removed from the action. You want to make the bracha right before the mitzvah without any separation, without any break in between. So here's our problem. If you're going to go and you're going to pick it up, you already fulfilled the mitzvah. If you're going to make a bracha before you pick it up, then that's too much of a separation. So how are we going to go and be able to correctly have the Luv and Esrog in our hand so that we can go and make a bracha on it, but still have not yet fulfilled the mitzvah. So this is where the idea comes from, that before one makes the bracha, he should hold the esrog upside down. The reason for that is one only fulfills the mitzvah if he holds the four species in the direction that they grow. But if you don't hold it in the direction that they grow, you have not fulfilled the mitzvah. Now, if you look at a picture of an esrog on a tree, you'll notice that the top is facing downwards, and the part where it's connected to the tree is actually the top. But that's only because of gravity. When it first when it first starts growing, so that it's going in an upwards direction, then as it gets heavier, it starts to starts to fall down. So when we talk about the direction that it grew in, that means the way that it was before gravity pulled it down, which is if you had a pitum, or if you don't have a pitum, that part facing upwards. So if you take your esrog and you hold it upside down, then you 100% do not fulfill the mitzvah. So therefore, that is why the practice is that you take your lulav, but you hold the you, you don't hold the lulav upside down. That would be way too hard. But you hold the esrog upside down, and by holding the esrog upside down, you have not fulfilled the mitzvah. You make the bracha of Al-Natilah's Lulav, and on, this, on the first day you also make the bracha of Shachianu, after you finish making the bracha, you then go and turn it right side up and start doing the shaking. That way the bracha is immediately before the fulfilling of the mitzvah. In order to fulfill the mitzvah, one only needs to shake it, make the bracha and to shake it. However, the mitzvah is done in a more beautiful fashion when it's also shook during Hallel. So during Hallel, we have these, uh, what's known as Nanum, the shakings, which is, uh, when we say, Hodu Lashem Kitov Kiliolam Chasto. So every time we say, Hodu Lashem Kitov Kiliolam Chasto, so we don't shake it when we say the name of Hashem. So if you don't count the name of Hashem, Hodu Lashem Kitov Kiliolam Chasto, that's seven words, not counting the name of Hashem, is six words. So you shake, um, each one of those words. So, Hodu, you face forward, and you do your shaking. Then, Lashem, you do nothing. Then, Ki, you turn to the right. Tov, you turn once again to the right. And you just keep on turning and shaking. Um, every single time we say, Hodu, Lashem, Ki, Tov, Ki, Chasto. Also, when we say, Ana Hashem, Hoshiana, so, Ana Hashem, Hoshiana has six, well, Ana Hashem, Hoshiana, the way that we do it is, uh, once again, we don't shake when we say Hashem. So when we say, ah, uh, na, so you do the first two shakings, the forward and then to the right. And then, hoshia is the next two. And then, na is the last two. So when one says, ah, na, Hashem, hoshia, na, so then uh, we shake. 
when we say Anah Hashem Hatzlichana, we do not shake. So, so only during Anah Hashem Hashirah, not during Anah Hashem Hatzlichana, and then at the end of Halo, after we say so we say there also Hodel Hashem Kitov Kilam Chasot, we say that two times, and once again we shake the exact same way as we did earlier with Hodel Hashem Kitov Kilam Chasot. That is the six shakings. Uh, that is the shakings during Halal. That would actually be a total of, I believe that's four, six, eight, I think eight times. Now, afterwards, later on in Davening, we have what's known as the Hoshanos. That's where we parade around the shul holding the Lulav and Esra. Just a few more important details. The holder is made out of uh, woven Lulav leaves. It's usually known by its Yiddish name, uh, Koshiko. I don't know any other name except maybe just calling it the holder. And the the um, Hadassim are put in on the right side and the Aravos are put in on the left side. Now, that's easier said than done because depending on which way you hold it, which one's the right or which one's the left. So when we say the right side and the left side, that means that you're holding your Lulav and the spine of the lulav is facing you. In other words, if you look at your lulav, so you have where on one side it uh, comes to like, a, to like a point, and on the other side it's more of an indentation. So I'm referring to the side that has the point. Uh, on the side that has, when you have, that's the correct way to hold it. So you're holding the lulav in your hand, and that side that has the point is facing you, so then the hadasim are on your right, and the aravos are on the left. Now, when one fulfills the mitzvah, so assuming that he's a righty, which I'm not, I'm a lefty, but assuming that he's a righty, so you hold the lulav in the right hand, because the lulav actually has three mitzvahs connected to it, because it has the lulav, the adas, and the aravos. You hold the lulav in the right hand, and the esrog in the left hand. Probably the most famous medrash about the four species is that they re- represent all the different types of Jews. Uh, the way that the Jews are viewed as Jews that have Torah and also fulfill mitzvot, those that have Torah, they learn Torah, they study Torah, but unfortunately they don't actually um, do any mitzvot. They have uh, mitzvot but no Torah, and they have no mitzvot and no Torah. So the Medrash says that taste represents Torah, and smell represents mitzvot. So the esro has good taste and good smell. So that represents the true tzaddik, one that both studies Torah and fulfills mitzvot. Lulav has taste but no smell. Therefore, that represents someone that studies Torah but doesn't actually do mitzvot. Now, you may ask, like, what are you talking about? Lulav has absolutely no taste. So you're right, Lulav doesn't have any taste, but Lulav is supposed to come from a date palm. So therefore, when we say that Lulav has taste, we're referring to the dates of the date palm. But I gather it's not it's supposed to not be particularly fragrant. Um, hadasim are not edible, they don't have any taste, but they do give off a good smell. So that represents someone that has masim tovim, that does good deeds, but doesn't actually study Torah. And the aravos has no smell and no taste, and that's someone that unfortunately has none of them. However, on Sukkot, they all come together, and we fulfill the mitzvah, and it's important to be able to have all of the Jews together. Probably the second most famous medrash 
is that it's referred, it, it's a hint or a reference to different parts of the body. The esrog is the heart, the lulav is the spine, the hadasim, the eyes, and the aravos, the mouth. There is an idea according to Kabbalah that one should shake the lulav and esrog in the sukkah, it's not a requirement by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, my Rebbe was very adamant that if you didn't shake before davening, and they're not going to wait for you, and you want to, um, and you want to shake before halal, because you have to make the bracha before halal, because otherwise you'll you'll be picking it up during halal, you'll be shaking it during halal without having made a bracha, which of course, as we mentioned, is a problem. You got to make the bracha before you do them. It's before you start shaking. So. If you don't have time to start running to a sukkah, so that you have to leave in the middle of the chazan's repetition of Shmonesrei, he was very insistent that you're supposed to listen to the chazan's repetition of Shmonesrei, and therefore the nice idea of shaking the lulav and esrog in the sukkah does not supersede the requirement to stay there and listen to the repetition of Shmonesrei. So if you want to wait till the repetition's over and then go to the sukkah, that's fine. But that was, uh, he was, he, he felt very vehemently about that. But, so if it's not, uh, in any way going to affect your dominant, it's a nice idea to go and shake it in the sukkah, but really it could be done anywhere. I believe that covers all of the main ideas. Thank you so much for listening.